This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. We're short on time tonight, so let's get right to the action. Action that takes place on the streets of Los Angeles. Yes, it's time for Sergeant Joe Friday to show up with another story on Dragnet. Tonight's episode is entitled, Ellen Corday. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide. Somewhere in the tangled web of your city, there's a killer on the loose. A young woman has been brutally murdered. The weapon, a steel bludgeon. Your job is to get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Thursday, March 19th. It was foggy in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. It was 9.14 p.m. when I got to the old central jail building, third floor. The crime lab. Hi, Joe. Hi, Cumminley. Just ran a spectrograph. What'd you find? The paint flake from the victim's head matches that paint on the hunk of pipe. Any prints? No, the pipe was clean, no latent prints. Well, that figured. Anything else? Got those blood test reports. A couple of slides for you to look at under the comparison mic. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Lee. Oh, hi, Joe. Didn't hear you come in. What's it look like, Ben? Well, here's the blood test reports. This one is blood found on the piece of pipe. Mm, type A. This one's blood from the victim. Type A. They match. That's right, boys. Doesn't mean too much, though. Did you look at these slides under the microscope? No, not yet. Well, this is your clincher. Wait till I get the light. Okay, take a look. Mm-hmm. Got a make? Yeah, go ahead. Well, this slide here on the right... Mm-hmm. That's a slice of hair from the victim's head. On the other slide is hair found on the steel pipe. Yeah? She had wavy hair. Both specimens are flat. Same hair, Joe. Got anything on that piece of pipe, Lee? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Just ordinary steel pipe, 14 inches long. What else you got? The plaster impressions of those footprints we found by the body. Here they are. 
crepe sole? Tennis shoes, new ones, size nine, good impression. Ground was soft. Man about 150 pounds, according to the length of stride, roughly about 5 feet 10 inches tall. Yeah, new shoes, all right. You can still read the manufacturer's label. That's right. Made by the Sport King Company. Well, that's something to follow up. Yeah, sure. You could start with the tennis courts. Only about a 1,000 or so in L.A. Maybe you'd rather track down the brand. These particular tennis shoes are the biggest sellers in the country. Yeah. Where'd you like to start, Minneapolis or Pullman, Washington? What about that glove? Yeah, you might look for a missing glove. Yeah. They go well with the shoes, just about as common. White cotton work gloves with a blue top. Here's the right glove. You find the left one. Blood on a glove? Type A. Well, that's good evidence, Jones, but where's the lead? Now, look, I don't ask you to pay my parking tickets. You want to see blow-ups? Okay. Right over here. Oh, yeah. This is the vacant lot where they found the body. Yeah, that's right. Here's a close-up of her showing the location of the murder weapon, the glove, and the footprints relative to the position of the body. Looks as bad as yesterday. Sure did work her over, didn't it? The rest of these are morgue shots. Interested? No, I checked them this morning. Once is enough, Lee. Yeah, that winds it, boy. You want to go over the stuff in her purse again? You find anything more? No, nothing you haven't seen already. The usual. Makeup, comb, barrette. That's a hair clip. Mm -hmm. A few cheap stones in it. Loose change, a quarter, nickel, a few pennies. Her ID card. Yeah. Helen Corday. 33 Naomi Place. Age 21. 21. That's not very old, is it, Lee? Not to die. No. Helen Corday. Who could kill Helen Corday? Why? Why do you say that, Mr. Meyer? Well, people kill for money. They, they kill for love. Helen Corday had none of these. No boyfriend? Not in here. No, she was a good worker. Five different waiters, says the union, sends me one month. Five! Did the union send Helen to you? Oh, sure, sure. All the girls come from the union, but none like Helen. Oh, she was sweet, honest, and courteous. Mr. Meyer, did you know anything about her personal life? Only that she was a good worker. Everything else she took home with her from this place. Did she ever mention any men to you, anyone at all? No gentleman, not one. No. How much money did she make here? I paid her $26.50 a week, every Tuesday. Not much salary for so much work, but the tips are very good here. Nice customers. Mm -hmm. yeah, nice this is her home address, 33 Naomi Place? 33 Naomi, that's right, yeah. Thank you very much, Mr. Marr, for your time. I wonder what kind of a person does things like this. Who could kill Helen Cordy? Everybody liked Helen. Helen Cordy? I never liked her. Come on in the office, boys, where we can talk. Never liked her because I never knew her. You the head of the union? I'm just a steward. I know most of the girls. This Cordy girl, what was she what she look like? Small brunette, about five three. Uh, here's a picture. Yeah. Pretty girl, wasn't she? Oh, sure, sure. Mr. Aladato's place. Nice little Dutch fella. Adamaya. That's right. He seemed to think quite a lot of her. Hey, yeah, she was a fine worker. Oh, sure. Always right up on her dues. Paid all the assessments right on time. Thought you said you didn't know her. Well, not right off, I didn't. But when you showed me that picture there, placed her right away. You know anything about her personal life? Hey, wait a minute. Why all these questions? Helen Corday was murdered last night. Oh, who did it? You know anything about her personal life? Well, you see my position, Sergeant. 
1,200 girls. Check them in, check them out. Oh, it just names to me till I see a picture of them. You wouldn't know if she had any boyfriends here in the Union, waiters, busboys? That I wouldn't know. Like I tell you, Sergeant, I never knew Helen Corday. Sure, I knew Helen Corday. Gus plays a nice piano, huh, Sergeant? Yeah. I read about it in the paper this morning. How long you been selling pianos here at this place? About as long as I knew Helen. Three years. How'd you find me? Helen's landlady, we talked to her yesterday. She told us she worked here at this piano store. Oh. Funny, isn't it? What's funny? See Gus over there? That fellow demonstrating the piano? A few weeks ago, I made a deal with him to give Helen piano lessons. I figured it would help her with her singing lessons. Wanted to be a singer, you know. Did Helen know that fellow, Gus? No, she never met him. Who gave her the singing lessons, Miss Olsen? She took from Ostrander. Paul Ostrander, out on Melrose. A lot of movie people used to take from him. What do you know about her personal life? How do you mean? Does she have any boyfriends? Well, yes. You don't seem sure, Miss Olsen. Well, it's just that I don't know. I never asked Helen. But she did have a few dates with Paul Ostrander. I don't think she was serious. How about Ostrander? Gee, I, I don't know, Sergeant. I don't want to involve anybody. You want to help us find the killer, don't you? Well, yes, but if you're thinking Paul Ostrander did it, no, I'm sure he didn't kill her. That's all for today, Victoria. No, gentlemen. I did not kill Helen Corday. You gave her singing lessons, Mr. Ostrander. You knew her pretty well? Yes, I gave her voice coaching for about a year and a half. Helen showed a little promise. Not a great voice, a bad vibrato. You knew her pretty well. Why do you say that? Mr. Ostrander, didn't you used to take her out once in a while? No. no I didn't know Helen socially at all. We know you had dates with her. That's not true. Only time I saw her was when she came here to the studio for lessons. You better tell the truth, Mr. Ostrander. We can prove that you've been out with her. Afraid of the publicity, is that it? Certainly, that's it. I have a successful business here. I've spent years building it. Anything like this would ruin me. Then you have been out with her. Only a few times. Nothing serious. I had nothing to do with her murder. Now, that's the truth. Don't you know that withholding information about a thing like this can go kind of hard for you? Yes, I know that. What else could I do? Mr. Ostrander, somewhere in this city right now, there's a guy who beat a young girl to death. He crushed her skull with a piece of steel pipe. We need every bit of information we can get to track him down. I know that, sir. You could have come to us. We wouldn't run to the newspapers with it. If the information's confidential, that's the way we treat it. Most of the time, it's the people who run to the newspapers first. Then they come to us. That's right, Mr. Ostrander. People are their own press agents. Sergeant, I'd like to know what right you have to invade my privacy and lecture me on my civic duty. All right, I'll tell you what right, Ostrander. We want the man who murdered Helen Corday. I got as much right as he had at 12.14 this morning. Come on, Joe. Yeah. Thanks, Mr. Ostrander. Sorry if I invaded your privacy. Chief of Detectives, Dollars. Hannon. No, I'm sorry, ma'am. You got the wrong extension. Try 2511. You're welcome. Hi, Friday, right Romero. Chief's been looking for you. Thank you, Mike. Come on, Joe. Yep. Hello, Joe. Ben. Sit down. What'd you get? A notebook full of notes. A crime lab full of evidence. Nothing to tie them together. Uh, are these some of the people you interviewed? 
Yeah, those and about a dozen more we didn't even take notes on. It's hard to figure, Skipper. Everybody seemed to like this girl. Ellen Corday, no known relative. Single, unattached girl, living all alone in the city. Few friends and no enemies, none we can find anyway. Are you uh, satisfied that all the people you interviewed are in the clear? Well, if we're going to stick to the simple robbery motive, we are. The kind of money Helen Corday made wouldn't interest those people. How are you doing on the outside leads? Nothing. If we could just find one hole someplace, anything. All right, now look. You've got a lab full of evidence across the street. You've got a book full of names here. You've got the pieces. Now fit them together. They just don't add. Well, go over them and keep going over them until they do add. Anything from the informant? No, nothing so far. No tips on anybody that's been dough-heavy lately. Nobody's shooting off their mouth. Well, the guy we want won't advertise. Figures himself a pretty smooth operator. But he probably made a mistake somewhere along the line. We'll find it. Got a hot shot, Ed. Yeah? 3220 Casino. Woman, probable attack. All right, Friday. You and Ben run it down. We ran down the hot shot call for 3220 Casino turned out to be a typical dead-end lead. Her name was Mrs. Lillian Horn. For the past five years, Mr. Horn had been paid regularly on Wednesdays. He spent all day Thursday drinking up his paycheck and beating his wife. The call had no connection with the Corday murder. We made the usual call into communication. Unit 80K to Control 1. 80K to Control 1. Control 1 to 80K. Go ahead. On that probable attack, 3220 Casino. Code 4. 80K, Roger. 80K to Control 1, KMA 367. That was the beginning. For the next three days, we followed up every lead and every call, but they were all blind. All units were alerted, and they had as much information on the killer of Helen Corday as we did. Ben and I cruised throughout the entire Central Division. We covered every probable call that might have some connection with the murder. Attention, Unit 41R. 1654, Swanson Terrace, a woman, victim of probable attack, code 3, unit 41R. It didn't make any difference what the call was. If there was a possibility it might tie in with the Corday murder, we ran it down. We made it a 24-hour job. So far, if the killer made a mistake, we hadn't been able to find it. The Corday funeral was on Monday. They were all there. The girl's landlady, the boy's teacher, Ostrander the girlfriend, Marie Olson, the man from the union, and her boss, Otto Meyer. But nobody else we hadn't checked. That was Monday afternoon. Monday night, we went back to the old routine, tracking calls during the night in the squad car, picking up small threads that led nowhere. Three more days of the same thing. Thursday morning, one week after we found Helen Corday's body, we got an anonymous phone tip. I know who killed Helen Corday. His name is George Barlow. He lives at 418 White Oak Avenue. He used to date her up all the time. Get him and you've got the murderer. We checked George Barlow and about ten others just like him. None of them knew Helen Corday. Saturday night, Ben and I were back in the squad car cruising the Central Division. Saturday night's a good night for robbery. By 10 p.m., we'd run down four various calls. 123, code one. 123, roger. 12G, call your station. Unit 13R, 1254 Tower Road. A woman screaming. Investigate in trouble. Code 2. Let's handle that one, Ben. Yeah, okay. I'll notify communication. Unit 80K to Control 1. 80K to Control 1. Control 1 to Unit 80K. Go ahead. 
On your 1254 Tower Road call, we're in the vicinity. We will handle. 80K, roger. 80K to Control 1, KMA 367. Let's go, Ben. I got a right to know where you're taking me. What's the charge? We'll let the girl tell you. What girl? You just sit there and be quiet, huh? Oh, I know where you're going. The place back on Tar Road. Well, I asked to use the phone. The girl slammed the door in my face. I don't know what you cops are trying to prove. I just wanted to use the phone, that's all. I even tried to scare her a little. I, I told her I'd hit her over the head if she didn't let me use the phone. Laugh, huh? All right, you get out. Yeah, I suppose so. Get out. Hey. I got nothing to hide. That little girl's gonna lie, you know that, don't you? Who's there? Police officers. That's the man. That's him. He tried to kill me. His full name's Frank Philip Larson. They had no previous record. This the uh, girl's report? Yeah, that's it, Skipper. Uh, Judy Scott. How old is she? He's 19. She's a babysitter. Real tough boy, isn't he? Forced his way into the house. Beat her about the neck and arms. Uh, a tire iron. He fought it in his car. Jones is running it through the crime lab. Asked her if she had any money. She told him no. Struck her again. Where's this Larson live? Hotel out near Santa Monica. The clothing salesman, Ed, works for a big men's store, Burns and Company. According to the house book sales record, he bought a pair of tennis shoes two weeks ago. Weighs 158 pounds, 5 foot 11 inches. Tennis shoes are missing. They're not in his hotel room. He's not wearing them. What else do you find? A rhinestone. You mean a pin? No, just a small, loose stone recovered from the rug in Larson's room. Crime lab got it? Working on it now. Ed, I think we got the man who killed Helen Corday. <laughs> A few scraps of circumstantial evidence and a hunch. That's not much to go on. Larson had gone after the little Scott girl with a tire iron. Wasn't much of a tie-in, but we had to be sure. All that day, we checked Frank Larson's alibi for the night of Helen Corday's murder. We interviewed the personnel manager at Burns and Company where he worked. We talked to all the clerks who knew him. The manager of the hotel where he lived. We found out everything we could about Frank Larson. And that night at 10 o'clock, we had the prisoner brought to the interrogation room. How are you, Larson? Fine. 
Just fine. I like jail. Sit down. Lousy weather. Been foggy all over town. I wouldn't know. I've been inside all day. How old are you, Lorton? 31. Same as the last time you asked me. Where'd you go to school? I didn't. I was born smart. You sell clothes, don't you, Lorton? We know you work for Burns and Company. Remember, you told us. What is all this? What are you guys trying to build? Just want to know if you like selling clothes. That's all. What do you coppers know about clothes? One blue surge a year is your speed. You know quite a bit about clothes, don't you? I've been selling them for five years. Can you tell me something I've been wondering about? What's that? Are your socks and tie always supposed to match? That's what the style books say. Bet you always know the right things to wear, don't you? You wouldn't wear black shoes with a brown suit, would you? Is that what you're keeping me here for? Stylism? Oh, would you? Would you wear black shoes with a brown suit? Most people wouldn't. Bet you wouldn't wear brown shoes with a tuxedo, would you? I've been smoking too much. You got a glass of water? Oh, yeah, sure. There you are, Lord. Thanks. That's good and cold. How about it? Would you ever wear brown shoes with a tux? Nobody would. That's a navy blue flannel you got on there, isn't it? Yeah. It's a good-looking suit. Stop around sometime. Get you a good deal. Suit like that flannel there you're wearing... You'd never wear tennis shoes with an outfit like that, would you? What do you think? I think you did. I think you wore them the night you killed Helen Corday. Who? Maybe you didn't have the blue suit on, but you were wearing tennis shoes. Sport King, size nine. Sell for five ninety-five. You picked them up at a discount. Cost you three and a quarter. Where'd you get that? Out of the house book, Burns and Company. You wouldn't have those shoes around now, would you? We couldn't find them in your hotel room. Your boss, Mr. Craig, used to think a lot of you, Larson. Before you started drinking on the job, your commissions used to run pretty high up the last couple of months. What happened? That cheap rye get to you? Well, you two really nosed around, didn't you? When are you going to tell me what I eat for breakfast? Cornflakes, cup of coffee, donut, sometimes two donuts when you're hungry. Elsie waits on you at the Royal Cafe. She gets a dime tip. <laughs> and have some more of that water. Help yourself, there's a cooler. Very good and cold. <laughs> How about it, Larson? Where are the tennis shoes? They wore out. In three weeks? They'd be very good tennis shoes. No, they didn't wear out. What'd you do with them? You know all the answers. You figured it out. We know you bought the tennis shoes. We don't know where they are now. We know you had them. Size nine. Three feet from the body of Helen Corday, we found two size nine footprints made by a pair of Sport King tennis shoes. We figured the man weighed about 150 pounds. You weigh 158. Figured he's about five foot ten. You're 5'11". You come awful close to being the same build as the man who killed Helen Corday, don't you, Lars? Man, you wear the same size tennis shoes, same brand name. A lot of people wear nines. It's the average size. They sell a lot of Sport Kings, too. Everybody wears them. If we could find your pair, might make a difference. Doesn't mean your tennis shoes made the prints with a body. Doesn't prove that it didn't, neither. What'd you do with them, Larson? I threw them away. That's too bad. Might make a difference. Oh, what difference could it make? I threw them away, that's all. Now, how about the mate to this glove? I never saw it before. Found this right-hand glove by the body of Helen Corday. Just an ordinary cotton work glove. Everybody wears them. We could find the missing left glove. Why, might make a difference. Size, medium. That's average, too, isn't it, Larson? I never saw work gloves. I wouldn't know. No, but you bought work gloves, haven't you? Not a pair of those. I mean like this, don't you? We only got one. What kind of work gloves did you buy? I didn't buy any. You just said you did. I never said I bought any work clothes. You bought tennis shoes, though, didn't you? I Sport... told you I bought the tennis shoes. Didn't I tell you I bought them? No, you didn't tell us. We told you. Found out from Burns and Company where you work. All right, you told me. I bought them. You know that. 
Same kind of tennis shoes that made footprints by Helen Corday's butt. It wasn't me. Then why won't you tell us what you did with the I've shoes? I've already told you. I threw them away. They were only three weeks old. Must have worn out awful fast. I didn't say they wore out. They got too dirty. No, you told us they wore out. Remember, Larson? I don't remember what I told you, but I don't have them now. We know you don't have them now. Where are they? He told us. They got too dirty. Right, Larson? Yes. Yes, yes, that's what I said. Anyhow, you haven't got them now. No, I haven't got them now. All right, now, just for the record, Larson, which was it? Did they get too dirty or did they wear out? Whatever I said before. You said both before, Larson. All right, I said both. You haven't got anything on me. We got that little Scott girl statement from last night. She says you tried to kill her. She's lying. I told you she'd lie, didn't I? I only wanted to use the phone. She says you hit her with a tire iron. Did you hit her with that iron? No, I only tried to scare her. I didn't hit her with anything. Then how'd you get those marks around her neck and arm? Police doctor says they were made by that tire iron. I don't care what your doctor says. I didn't hurt her. Now, what do you mean, Larson? You didn't hurt her or you didn't hit her with that tire Neither iron? Neither one. I just wanted to use a phone. How'd you know she had a phone? I didn't know if she had a phone. I just went up to find out. To find out what? To find out if I could use a phone. But you said you didn't know if she had a phone. I don't know anything the way you twist everything around. Sorry, Larson. We only want the truth. How about a cigarette? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I could use it. Here's light. Larson, where were you Wednesday night, March 18th? How many times are you going to ask me that same question? Just want to make sure we got it right. I told you this morning. I went to a show. I got out about 11, had a beer, and I went home. What time did you get home? About 11.30. Did you stay home? I went to bed. What did you see at the show? I never remember the names. You ought to try to remember this, and it's pretty important. It was a deluxe theater. It was... Spencer Tracy and something. What was on when you walked in? The news. I never go in in the middle of a picture. Neither do I. Spoils them for me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The girl in the box office doesn't remember seeing you go in. She know. It was keen all night. There was a big crowd. Did you win anything? I never do. Anybody hit the jackpot? I don't remember. They give away a lot of money at those neighborhood theaters. I always remember who hits the jackpot. All right, you do. I don't. You remember if anybody won the jackpot? I told you, no. Do they have a jackpot at that show? I guess they do. I don't know. You know, it was Keno night. You should know if they had a jackpot. Maybe they had a jackpot. I don't know. I went out for a smoke. You said the cartoon was on when you walked in. Why do you always twist what I say? I told you the news was on when I went in. You remember anything about the newsreel? It was ten days ago. How do I know it was in it? I only know it was a newsreel. That's all. You're lying, Larson. We checked your alibi. The manager of the theater had to cut the newsreel Wednesday night because the show was running long with Keno night. You didn't go to the show Wednesday night, did you? All right, maybe I didn't. I don't remember. What's the difference? The difference is you could have been in that vacant lot the same night, the night Helen Corday was murdered. I didn't kill her. You can't prove I did. Interrogation room, Friday. Hiya, Jones. It did, huh? You're positive. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Lee. Sure you don't want to tell us what you did with those tennis shoes? I'm not going to go back over all that. I've told you guys all I'm going to tell you. You know how the Corday girl was murdered? How would I know? I don't know anything about it. She was on her way home from work, as usual, about midnight. Of course, you were home in bed about that time. But you didn't go to the show that night, Larson. On her way home, Helen Corday always took a shortcut across a vacant lot. She was about halfway through the lot when the murderer tried to grab her purse. She screamed and he struck her. Hit her several times with a piece of steel pipe 14 inches long. He beat her to death with that piece of steel pipe. Then he dropped the pipe in the right-hand cotton work glove. He left two footprints, size nine, sport king tennis shoes. I know all that. Well, here's something you don't know. When the killer scooped the paper money out of that girl's purse, he accidentally took along a loose rhinestone, a stone that fell out of a cheap barrette in the bottom of her bag. He carried that stone home with him. When he reached in his pocket to pull out the money he stole from her, the rhinestone fell on the floor. So? We found that rhinestone on the rug in your hotel room. Well, I haven't lived in that hotel room all my life. Maybe the tenant before me dropped it there. No, not this one. We checked the cement that held it in that barrette. It matches the glue on the stone. No, Larson, that rhinestone came from the hair clip that Helen Corday wore before she was murdered. And that's enough to take you to the district attorney with. What am I supposed to say? We want you to tell us the truth. Why did you kill Helen Corday? Yeah. 
You want the sandwiches and coffee now, Sergeant? Bring them in, Mike. Looks like we're going to be here a long time. Yeah, I brought you ham, cheese, and liverwurst. And some fruit. The coffee's black. Cream and sugar on the side. Mm, thank you, Mike. Yeah, it looks good. What kind do you want, Larson? Ham, cheese, liverwurst. Oh, you're not hungry? Okay. Bound with you? No, thanks. I think I'll have an apple, huh? Yeah. Okay. Huh. I fixed you a plate there, Larson. Right, coffee's right here. It's a fine apple. Mm. Nice and fresh. This a Washington apple? Yeah, I don't know. Is that coffee hot enough? No, it's fine. Where'd Mike pick these up? Well, then cross the street. Eddie's? No, hmm. Huh? Oh, it tastes good. Well, drink your coffee anyway, Larson. It's getting cold. All right! All right! I didn't want to kill her. She screamed and I hit her. All I wanted was her purse. That's all I wanted. She, she wouldn't give to me. She had to fight back, so I hit her. I, I didn't want to kill her. All she had to do was give me the purse. I wouldn't have hurt her. I... I was, I was drinking and I didn't know what I was doing. I, I, I was drunk. I was drunk. I didn't, I didn't mean to kill her. I, I, I didn't mean to kill her. Mike, stay with him. We'll call the stenographer. See you tomorrow, Joe. Good night. Yeah. Sour racket, huh? The story you have just heard is true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Frank Philip Larson was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. He was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary. You have just heard the fifth in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet is furnished by the Los Angeles Police Department. Stay tuned for Lucille Ball in My Favorite Husband, next on Theater of the Mind. The year was 1948, and one of the most popular shows on radio starred the multi-talented actress and future business icon, Lucille Ball. Tonight, we hear the story of Baby Booties. Hmm, do I discern the pitter-patter of little feet? <laughs> Let's find out. We present My Favorite Husband, a new series based on the delightful stories of Isabel Scott Rorick's gay and sophisticated Mr. and Mrs. Cougar, starring Lucille Ball with Richard Denning. <laughs> Ten years ago, Elizabeth Elliot decided to marry an eligible bachelor. So she picked handsome man-about-town George Cougat. Because, as Liz put it... George was the most eligible, eligible bachelor eligible. Well, since, <laughs> since their marriage, neither Liz nor George has said much about children. But then, children have never said much about them either. Now, that's because they don't have any. The children, I mean. In fact, the only time it ever came up was when they returned from their honeymoon and George was showing Liz around their new house. Wait a minute, George. What's this little bedroom here? 
Well, uh, I kind of thought it would look cute in pink and blue with nursery rhymes on the walls. But uh, we can fix it up temporarily as a maid's room. What do you mean, temporarily as a maid's room? Well, someday uh, we may want a couple of little ones. You mean a couple of little maids instead of one big one? (laughs) Well, that was, as I say, ten years ago. So today, Mr. and Mrs. Cougat are still just two people who live together and like it. Lucille Ball is Liz with Richard Denning as George in My Favorite Husband. It is morning at the Cougat house. Katie, the maid, has gone out to the mailbox to see if the postman left any ads or blotters. And Liz is cooking breakfast. And George is still upstairs dressing. Finally, Liz goes to the foot of the stairs and calls. George! Yes, darling? I've got your breakfast ready. The toast is burned just the way you like it. (laughs) Okay, I'll be right down. Yes, Katie. Uh, why does Mr. Cougat like burnt toast? I don't know. He developed a taste for it after we were married. <laughs> Good morning, Liz, darling. Morning, Katie. Morning, Mr. Cougat. George, aren't you going to kiss me this morning? On an empty stomach? <laughs> Certainly. Give me a kiss. I'm fresh out. Oh, come on, George. You must have an old kiss lying around somewhere. Okay. There. How's that? That wasn't just lying around. It was dead. (laughs) That had all the zip of the old George Cougat. Well, the old George Cougat better get a new zipper. (laughs) What are you laughing about, Katie? (laughs) I was just thinking about my first husband, Clarence. Now, there was a kisser. Good? No, ugly. (laughs) Come on, George. Your breakfast is ready. Oh, so am I. Uh, where's the morning paper, Katie? George, are you going to bury yourself in that paper again this morning? Oh, I just want to look at the financial page and see how the stock market is doing. Oh, here it is, Mr. Cougat. Oh, thanks, Katie. Uh, let's see now. Amalgamated copper, fisk tires. Hmm, AT&T is down two points. I'd better get some. Hmm, TP&L is down one point. Well, I'd better get some. Hmm, SFO&P is down three points. I'd better get some. Hmm. Yeah, what's the matter? BVD is down two cents. You need some. Liz, you've been looking. You've been showing. Oh, here's an item about Jane Kendall. I have to get her something, George. She's expecting her baby. Yeah, baby. I don't want to have any of that last-minute rushing. Yeah, rushing. You know, having a baby must be pretty tough. Yeah, pretty tough. George, are you listening to me? Hmm? Oh, sure, Liz. Every word. What did I say? Say? Why, uh... Oh, you said those Russians are pretty tough babies. <laughs> didn't you? No, I didn't. Oh. Tough Russians are pretty babies? <laughs> Wrong again. Pretty Russian babies are tough? <laughs> Never mind. Yugoslav babies? <laughs> Never mind. If you weren't lost in that financial page, you'd hear what I said. Well, but Liz, in my business, it's important that I know what's happening in the stock market. I have to keep an eye on the bulls and the bears so that some wolf in sheep's clothing doesn't make me the goat. After all, I work in a bank. Sounds like the Chicago stockyards. (laughs) I don't see what's so wonderful about that financial page. It bores me stiff. 
I haven't the slightest interest in finances. No, that's because you're not in business, darling. Say, uh, was there any mail this morning? Katie! Yes, ma'am? Was there any mail this morning? Yes, the morning mail. <laughs> well, that sounds reasonable. Hmm, is that all? One letter? That's all, Mr. Cougat. But the people next door got a lot of mail this morning. Shall I go over and borrow some? <laughs> Don't bother, Katie. Open the letter, George. It's probably from someone who's on their vacation. All of our friends are out of town. Let's see now. Who do we know that went to the mountains or the seashore? It's from Barclay Brothers Department Store. Oh, it can't be. Why not? Well, who do we know that would spend their vacation at a department store? <laughs> Nobody. But we do know somebody who would run up a bill there last month of $250, don't we, Liz? Liz? Oh, what's new on the financial page, George? <laughs> Liz. Oh, come on, George. Tell me about the bears and the bulls again, George. <laughs> George, will you, George? <laughs> Liz, this is serious. You went over your allowance again, didn't you? Yes, George. Oh, Liz. What am I going to do with you? Raise my allowance? <laughs> I can't raise your allowance. I didn't get that mortgage deal with that real estate woman in Florida. Oh. Old man Atterbury must have found out about it because I didn't get that raise. Well, tell him you can't raise a wife and children on your salary. Well, but Liz, Mr. Atterbury knows we don't have any children. Well, then tell him we're expecting some on the next boat. <laughs> boat from where? Wherever children come from. <laughs> Had a talk with your mother lately, Liz? <laughs> of course. What did she say? She gave me a book to read. You know, what was the name of it? How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> well, that ought to do the trick. Liz, there's only one sensible thing for us to do. I knew you'd think of something, George. We've got to live within our means. Mm -hmm. Stick to our budget. Wonderful idea. It's not only sensible, it's impossible. <laughs> it's really very simple, Liz How? Well, just don't charge things we don't need Sounds simple, doesn't it? Of course George, from now on, I promise I won't charge a thing we don't need Good I'll pay cash for it Mrs. Cougat, I didn't know you could knit. Neither did I, Katie. How do you like it? Oh, it's adorable. Um, what is it? Baby booties. They're for Mrs. Kendall. Do you think they'll fit her? Katie, <laughs> Mrs. Kendall's going to have a baby. Oh, are you going to be there? No, she's just having the family and a few close doctors. <laughs> Mrs. Cougat, wouldn't it be easier for you to buy Mrs. Kendall some baby booties instead of getting all tangled up in that yarn? Yes, Katie, but I'm trying to help Mr. Cougat save some money. And baby booties cost $5 a pair. But how much did all this yarn cost? $10, but that's for five balls. But you won't need five balls of yarn to make one pair of baby booties. Well, I'm using the rest to make a sweater to match. To match the booty? No, a sweater to match the skirt I picked up for $29.95. I think it's wonderful of you to help Mr. Cougat save that way. Well, the only trouble is I had to charge all this stuff. So I think it would be better if we just didn't say anything about it, Katie. I understand, Mrs. Cougat. He'll probably laugh when he finds out that I've learned to knit. Yes, but he'll stop when he finds out how much it costs. <laughs> uh oh I better hide this knitting. Hey, anybody home? Oh, it's only Corey. 
gift. Mankind's gift to womankind. In the living room, Corey. Hi, Liz. It's Corey Cartwright, that gay dog. Throw him a bone, Katie. <laughs> oh, I'm not in the mood for jokes, Liz. I'll put your hat in the hole, Mr. Cartwright. What's the matter, Corey? I met the most beautiful girl at a beautiful party in a beautiful penthouse last night. Didn't you have fun? Yes, the beautiful girl and I spent a beautiful evening looking at the beautiful moon. Sounds beautiful. Not quite. Why? She had an ugly husband. <laughs> what was his name? I don't know. He never did catch me. <laughs> What makes you so fickle? Well, I'm not fickle, Liz. I just can't make up my mind. Well, sooner or later, the right girl will come along, and then you'll settle down, and she'll be knitting these books. Liz, am I seeing things? Are you knitting baby things? Yes, baby booty. Liz, you mean you? Why didn't you tell me? Well, I didn't know you'd be that interested. <laughs> interested? Of course I'm interested. Congratulations. Well, thanks. Why, I had no idea. Neither did I. In fact, I was just telling Katie I didn't know I could do it myself. Of course you can, Liz. I think every married woman should. You do? Certainly. What's marriage got to do with it? But good old George, he hasn't said a word about this, Liz. Well, good old George doesn't know about it. I'll bet George... I beg your pardon? George doesn't know about it, and don't you tell him. But why? Shouldn't he know? No, Mr. Atterbury didn't give him his raise, and this wasn't on our budget, so I had to charge it. payments <laughs> for everything these days. But really, Liz, don't you think you should tell him? No, he'd only worry about the budget. And besides, if George found out about this, he'd want me to take it back. <laughs> Yes, Cartwright. Well, I'm glad you did call me. <laughs> I had no idea Mrs. Cougat was expecting a bundle of joy. <laughs> no wonder he's been wanting a raise. Oh, yeah, sure, I agree with you. Yeah, I'll call him into my office right away. <laughs> Thanks for calling, Cartwright. Goodbye. <laughs> well, <laughs> so young Cougat's finally going to have an addition to the family. Eh? <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> Miss Johnson, you come into my office. Mr. Cougat, Mr. Atterbury wants to see you right away Uh-oh, has he heard about the collapse of that Florida deal? Not that I know of, I didn't tell him Okay, I'll go right in I wonder who told the old man about my failure with that real estate woman I'll bet that's the reason he didn't give me a raise Well, after all, it might happen to anybody Oh, George. George, my boy, my boy, come in, come in. Sit down. Thanks. Uh, George, George, I want to have a talk with you. Shall we say, uh, father to son? Uh, well, is it uh, about the raise I didn't get? Uh, yes, yes, so no, that is, uh, <laughs> George, George, I realize that you can't raise children on your salary. <laughs> of course, you don't have any children, yes? <laughs> no, but we're expecting some on the next boat. <laughs> what? Oh, nothing. That's, that's just something Liz told me this morning. Uh, look, Mr. Atterbury, I, I know why you called me in here. Oh, you do? Uh, yes, and I just want to say that anybody can make a mistake. <laughs> a mistake? Yes, maybe I tried too hard. 
Now, my boy, you know, it isn't as easy as you think. (laughs) Then then you're not angry? Angry? Oh, on the contrary, you've got my best wishes, my boy. Thanks, (laughs) Mr. Hatterbury. You know, that woman had me worried for a while. I can imagine. <laughs> she, she, she just didn't like the idea. Well, women are funny sometimes, you know? <laughs> yeah, she, she wanted me to do the whole thing by myself. But, uh, I understood that you both wanted Oh, I did. She didn't. Oh, really? And... And don't forget, we were a thousand miles from each other. <laughs> a thousand miles? Sure, she was in Florida. Good heavens, now wait a minute. If she was in Florida, then oh, I... By telephone, see? Uh, the whole thing was arranged over the telephone. <laughs> well, that settles it. George, my boy, I'm not only going to give you that raise, I'm going to pay that telephone bill. <laughs> Hi, Liz. Darling, you're looking at a new man, the brand-new 1948 model George Cougat. How much did you get for the old one? Plenty. (laughs) How about a kiss? Aren't you afraid you'll dent your fenders? (laughs) Come on, darling. How about a kiss for your hard-working husband? Nope, not in the mood. Since when? This morning. (laughs) I'll bet I can make you kiss me. I'll bet you can. Okay. Well, don't let me convince you. (laughs) All right. Well, first I'll put my arms around you like this. Mm-hmm. Now you put your arms around me like that. Mm-hmm. Now tilt your chin up. Mm-hmm. There. Now, now when I say a word, you say the name of the first fruit you think of. Mm-hmm. Ready? Okay, but I won't kiss you. Candied. Orange. Baked. Apple. Stewed. Pruned. I win. You kissed me. But you tricked me. That was a dirty, mean, low-down, underhanded trick. Trick me again, George. Uh Uh-uh. You might get to like it. George Cougat, there's only one word for a man like you. What is it? Coon. (laughs) Okay, scatterbrain. There. Prune is a beautiful word, George. Oh, wonderful word, prune. I love you. I love you too, Liz. Guess what happened at the office today? I don't know. Sit down and tell me all about it. Well, old man Atterbury called me in and... Hey, Liz, what's this? What's what? Well, it's uh, knitted stuff behind the chair. Knitted stuff, George? Yeah. Looks like, like baby shoes. Oh, that. Probably dust balls. <laughs> Liz, knitted dust balls? Oh, you may not know it, George, but we had the best-looking dust balls in town. <laughs> Well, wait a minute. There's a whole lot of yarn down in here, too. Look, what what is it, Liz? All right, Sherlock, you win. They're baby booties. Baby booties? Mm-hmm. Liz, you mean you? Didn't think I could do it, did you? <laughs> well, sure, but, but Liz, darling, this is wonderful. I thought it was pretty good myself. <laughs> well, gosh, honey, why didn't you tell me? I was afraid you'd be sore. I charged all that yarn to our account, and I went over our budget again. Oh, all this yarn to make one pair of baby booties? Hmm. What are you going to do with the rest of it? Why, uh... uh, What, Liz? Well, uh, uh, make more baby booties. 
More? Mm-hmm. Oh, good night. How many will you need? Well, you never can tell, George. It might be triplets. Triplets? Mm-hmm. Holy cats. I, I told old man Atterbury we were expecting some on the next boat. I didn't know the fleet was in. <laughs> Katie! Katie, come quick. Mr. Kugat's fainted. Well, what happened, Mrs. Kugat? I don't know. He said something about the fleet's in, then he sank. <laughs> Can you hear me? George, this is Liz. This is Liz. Glad to know you, Liz. I'm George. Oh, I think he's coming too, Mrs. Cougar. Yeah, come on, George. Oh, where am I? You're in bed. Oh, good night, Liz. Come on, George. Sit up. Up, Daisy. That's it. What happened? You fainted, Magnolia Blossom. Oh, yeah. Oh, but... But, Liz, you're the one that should be in bed, not me. Now, just stay where you are, George. You're as pale as a ghost. How did I get up here? Katie and I carried you. She carried, Mr. Cougat. I dragged. (laughs) You put on a little weight since the last time we carried you upstairs. (laughs) Oh, Liz, you, you shouldn't be lifting anything heavy now, especially upstairs. Well, Katie helped. Who brought me in here? Katie and I. Who put me to bed? Katie and I. Liz. What's the matter? Who put on my pajamas? That brought the color back to his cheeks, Mrs. Cougar. <laughs> Katie went downstairs, George. Oh. And I brought back this. Here, Mr. Cougar, take a sip of this brandy. It'll make you feel better. Are you sure that's brandy, Katie? Yes, ma'am. Remember the last time I fainted, you got hold of Mr. Cougar's bottle of Vitalis. My Vitalis? It went down all right, but I had to give my stomach a 60-second workout. (laughs) Oh, don't worry, ma'am. This is brandy, all right. You're sure? Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Positive. Oh, darn it, Corey. I haven't been able to do any work all day. Look at the stuff piled up on my desk. So Liz finally told you about the baby, huh, George? Well, not exactly, but when I found those baby booties, she could hardly deny it. But but she doesn't seem too interested. That's the way women are, George. You have to be very understanding at a time like this. Mm. Why don't you try to draw it out of her? Hint around. Maybe she'll confess. I I tried that already. But, But she acted like she didn't even know what I was talking about. Why? What did you say to her? Oh, I told her I understood that women who were expecting a baby get peculiar desires for food. So Liz said what kind of food, and I said kiddingly, oh, like ice cream and melted cheese poured over and a dill pickle on the top. What did Liz say? Well, she just said, what's peculiar about that? (laughs) That sounds like something Liz would say. I think I'll call her and see how she feels. Go ahead. You've only called her about 30 times today. Uh, hello, Katie. Uh, how's Mrs. Cougat feeling, Katie? What? The hospital? What's the matter, George? Oh, Liz has gone to the hospital. Already? Hello, Katie. Uh, which hospital did she go to? Yeah. Yeah. To phone her there? Well, I'll do better than that. I'll go, I'll go over there. Goodbye, Katie. Now keep calm, George. Getting excited won't help him. Yeah, keep calm. You're right, Corey. Don't get excited. Where's my hospital? I mean, where's my hat? Oh, wait a minute, George. Keep calm. I'll go with you. Now, don't get excited. Okay, okay. I'm calm. I'm calm. Uh, let's go. All right, but you can't go that way. What way? With a telephone on your head. Oh. 
a million for coming to the hospital with me, Liz. It was wonderful of you. Well, you're welcome, Jane, honey. I'm only glad I could do something to help. You have. Norman was so worried. He's read so many stories in the paper about taxi drivers having to stop on the way to the hospital because the baby arrived ahead of time. I wonder if they leave the meter running when that happens. (laughs) Oh, you make me feel good, Liz. When I probably should be feeling horrible. Do I, honey? I, um, I guess you're always a little anxious with the first one. Well, you haven't anything to worry about, Jane. You'll be all right. And when it's all over, you'll realize that this has been a very wonderful experience for you. Something you wouldn't take a million dollars for. Uh, do you think you could stay with me, Liz? I mean, um... Until the baby arrives? Of course, honey. I wouldn't think of leaving. Thanks. Norman should be here pretty soon. What do you want, Jane? A boy or a girl? Well, I'd sort of like a little girl. How about Norman? Oh, he says he just wants a boy or a girl. Well, I hope he isn't disappointed. (laughs) George, are you sure this is the right hospital? I don't know. Uh, Wait here, Corey. I'll ask that nurse at the desk. Um... I beg your pardon, nurse. Yes? Do you have babies here? Yes. Um, this is the place, Corey. <laughs> okay. Is there something I can do for you? Uh, no, thanks. My wife's doing it. You? Why? Uh, Mrs. Cougat. I'm Mr. Cougat. We have the same name. Uh, that's understandable. Uh, is she here? Uh, yes, she is, Mr. Cougat. But you can't see her now. She left a message for you. Oh, what is it? She said to tell you that she's decided to stay at the hospital until the baby arrives. Oh. <laughs> Will you give her a message for me? Certainly. Uh, Just tell her I think that she's made a wise decision. (laughs) George, don't you think you should go home and wait until you hear from Liz like the nurse told you? Of course, Corey, but I have to get this stuff before I go home. Isn't it a little premature? Of course not. I want to be ready. But look at all the stuff you bought already. Electric trains, baseball bat, drum and bugle, football helmet, boxing gloves. Maybe I should get him a football, too. George, do you realize that a newborn infant can't even stand up, much less play football? Why don't you get it a a rattle? A rattle? Oh, rattles are for kids. My son is going to play right tackle for Princeton. I hope he's in shape. They play their first game next week. (laughs) Now, Corey, let's not be silly about this kid. No, let's not be that. Obviously, he can't play right tackle with Princeton next week. Oh, obviously. He doesn't know the signals. (laughs) George, now, suppose it isn't a boy. Suppose it's a girl. Girl? Oh, no, it can't be a girl. Liz wouldn't do that to me. Liz hasn't got anything to say about it. What do you mean, Liz hasn't got anything to say about it? She's its mother. Yeah, but how can Liz make the child be a boy or a girl? Well, she has to learn to discipline it sometime. Hello, Katie. Oh, Mrs. Cougat, did Mrs. Kendall have her baby? Yes, she did. Is Mr. Cougat home? Uh, Yes, ma'am. He and Mr. Cartwright are in the study and acting mighty strange, if you ask me. Oh, really? I'll go in. Will dinner be ready soon? Yes, ma'am, in about a half hour. George! Oh, George! What in the name of... George! Look out, Corey. Here comes the Eastbound Express. (laughs) 
Liz, darling. Hi, Liz. Liz, what are you doing home so soon? What do you mean soon? It's after seven. (laughs) Yeah, but but what about the baby? It was born an hour ago. An an hour ago? Sure. But, 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 how'd you get out of the hospital? I walked out. How do you think? (laughs) Oh, but, but didn't the doctor say anything to you? Yeah, he said goodbye. (laughs) Well, I knew medical science had made progress, but I didn't know it was anything like this. What about the baby, Liz? What is it? It's a boy. A boy? Oh, what did I tell you, Corey? Oh, Liz, who does he look like? He looks like Norman Kendall. (laughs) Yeah, I knew it. Who? Norman Kendall. Who'd you expect him to look like? You? Well, as a matter of fact, I did. (laughs) Well, after all, I am his father. (laughs) What? Now, listen. Excuse me, Mrs. Sugat. The hospital just phoned to tell you that it was twins. Twins? Oh, give me time. I just became the father of a boy. This one's a girl. Congratulations, George. Now you're a mother, too. Oh, Liz, darling, why didn't you tell me Jane and Norman Kendall were expecting a baby? I told you the other morning at breakfast that you were too busy reading the financial page. Oh, uh, that reminds me. Where's the evening paper? I'm sitting on it. Sitting on it? Why? Because I want to tell you about Mitzi, and I don't want you to get me mixed up with Mitzi like you did with Jane. All right. What is it? Mrs. Jordan says Mitzi is expecting. Who's Mitzi? Her cocker spaniel. <laughs> Are you asleep? Not yet. Can I sit on the side of your bed? Sure. There. Isn't this cozy? Mm-hmm. George, your bed's higher than mine. Maybe it's because you're sitting on my stomach. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, darling. Is that better? Much. George? Yes, Liz? I'll bet I can make you kiss me. I'll bet you can't. All right. First, I put my arms around you. Mm-mm. Ah, but I won't bite on this. I taught it to you. Now, tilt your chin up like this. Now, ready? Yeah, I'm ready, but I won't bite. Candied orange. Mm-mm. Baked apple. Mm-mm. Stewed, uh, stewed... Oh, darn, what is that other word? Oh, you mean prune? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Liz, you tricked me. <laughs> Good night, George. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope you'll be with me next week as I uncover more gems from the golden age of radio. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a wonderful weekend. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.